Amen. Good morning, Grace Hill. How was that for an intro? It's going to be a hard text this morning. We excited? <laughs> I came in and they asked, hey, are you excited to preach the text? And in full disclosure, I was not excited to preach the text. I think I said a long time ago that I was excited to preach probably back in April or something like that. And I got to preach on the church and the goodness of that. And I was like, there's some sermons where you're like, I'm so excited to be able to preach because I don't have to talk about some really hard things. I can talk about really encouraging things. And man, here we are, first week of Advent. Merry Christmas, everybody. We have a hard one. But though it is hard, it is the word of God and it is good for us The whole counsel of God is for our reproof and our training and our uplifting and building up. So happy Advent season to you. (laughs) I'm excited to be with you. Listen, we talked about Advent. Mel did such a good job. Mel, thanks for leading us this morning. I was amazing as she was just helping us enter into a time of worship together. And I was just sharing a little bit before this week as I was just studying. I wasn't even studying specifically for this, but I came across something and it was something that really struck me. And so I shared it. And then as Mel kind of led us in, it's just been helpful for my own heart in worshiping God this morning and being together with the saints now and here is being reminded that what we are entering into, what we are into right now is worship that is eternally ongoing. And it struck me. I've been around the church for a long time, and I thought, man, how self-centered of me that I can just think, well, I show up on a Sunday at 10 o'clock or 10.30, and now worship starts. And no, no, the Bible helps reorient us around this idea that everything is already happening. Jesus is on the throne. The seraphim and all these crazy things that we'll even get a chance to touch on today, all of these beings that have been created in the heavenly places are worshiping the Lord, the Almighty God, as we speak as we join together this morning. And I was literally blown away. I was just sitting there thinking, oh God, how amazing that we are invited in to what is already happening in the heavenly places. And so here as his church, here as his people, Mel and Nick and, and, and Peter helped orient our hearts around what is already happening So my prayer for you and me this morning is that we would be encouraged even as we look at the word of God and hear some hard things this morning. Mel did a great job. What is Advent? What is this thing that you see behind us? What does that word mean? And there's this Latin word called Adventus. And really that's where the word Advent comes from. And it it literally just means this. It's the anticipation or the arrival or coming of something or someone of importance. And so the church over the ages has adopted, as Mel even said, with the church calendar, this whole idea of just helping to orient ourselves and our hearts and minds around the rhythm of what God has done in his whole redemptive story. So here we find ourselves in the first week of celebrating, remembering, anticipating, expecting, and reflecting on all that God has done for us as we look to Christmas and the incarnation of God himself through Jesus. How amazing is that? And this message that Mel said this series is going to be all based on is, as you can see behind us, it's the promise of hope. And so the focal point of every message that you will hear over the next four weeks from the Word of God is going to be centered around that idea, hope. 
What does it look like? Where is it coming from? How will it happen? And see, I think the word hope actually just implies that there's already a need. What do we hope for if we already can take care of it? We hope, I would argue, because we are in need of something that we don't have control over. We hope that we get back home safely today. But do any of us have control over how that happens? We have very little. We have our own steering wheel, but we aren't controlling the others, right? And so this idea of hope permeates the scriptures. And we're going to see that today in small measure, but it will grow. And so as we look at our text this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to hang out in Isaiah chapter 5. And what we're going to do, and as you turn there in your own Bibles or on your phones where you have these scriptures, turn to Isaiah 5. And what we're going to find ourselves is we're going to find ourselves in the midst of a song. We're going to find ourselves in the midst of something that I would argue is not going to be a chart-topping single that we are going to put on repeat over and over again in the car like I like to do. No, I don't think that is the song we will find, but nonetheless, we find ourselves in a song. This song is going to be a complex roller coaster. It's going to start off on a high note, and man, it is going to tank. Who wants to listen to that song? <laughs> Turn up the volume, right? Let's jam out to this one. But as we look, we need to understand the context of the prophet Isaiah. And so I will give just a bare bones context framework for us to understand where we're at and we're reading this song together and we're listening to the lyrics of this song together. Isaiah is a prophet and Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is a massive, massive book full of prophecy, of judgment and of hope. And Isaiah is coming onto this scene and he is supposed to now pronounce judgment on God's people. Many would argue and commentators would say, just like the prophet Jeremiah, who's excited for this opportunity to pronounce judgment to a people and much less a people who are actually not going to listen to you. My wife is a teacher and every day she comes home, almost every day, but she's gracious, but I believe it's every day. And she does this. She teaches and people do not listen. And it's a frustrating endeavor. But imagine if you move from education to matters of salvation and people who will not Listen, yet God has called Isaiah and others to pronounce judgment. And he's going to do this through this song. And so what we're going to find ourselves here and now is in the midst of Isaiah, pronouncing a judgment on God's people. And remember, God's people. And so what we're going to find ourselves is in between this conflict of who Israel is supposed to be as God's people, God's chosen nation, a holy priesthood that he's set aside, that he's called them his people and that he's going to be their God. And yet we find them actually contrasted with being very, very far from what God has called them to be as his people. What we will see is that God is saying sin must be dealt with. And I'm going to argue throughout this sermon today that grace should not be presumed upon. 
Let's read, follow along as I read. These seven verses will be on the screen. Remember, think of this as a song, so put your headphones in, and here we go, and let's listen to this amazing ballad of judgment. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Here's maybe a pre-course. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked to it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild, wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Here's kind of like this bridge here. It's going to become the climax. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled on. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. My guess is this is more of a minor chord progression that's coming here. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah and his pleasant planting are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. What a song. Am I right? Anyone want to repeat that one? This is no ordinary love song. As I mentioned earlier, this is complex in its making. In fact, some scholars call this a really, it's a funeral song. It's a sad song. Merry Christmas. The first seven verses of this song are set up into different sections, four different sections. And we're gonna look at those as we take a deeper dive into the lyrics. This is kind of like if you've ever watched VH1 and I'm dating myself, it's like behind the music. Hey, what is the artist? What did you really do here? And they're gonna sit in this really cool, maybe some lava lamps from the 90s and some grunge things, that's what I remember. And they're gonna sit back and they're gonna unpack a bit of your, the lyrics that we have grown to love. And that's what we're gonna do. Although these aren't flannel shirts and there's no lava lamps. The first two verses of this song give you and me context. He's setting up this incredibly picturesque view. Can you imagine it? Let him sing for my beloved. This starts off really like a love song. Picture my beloved. Look at this vineyard on a high hill that would be fertile and picturesque. My beloved vineyard. You see a person in love with his possession. He cares dearly for it. The song is on a high note. In the second verse of the song, you see the work and effort that this person is putting into this vineyard that he loves and cares for and is very precious to him. But we need a little bit of help to understand the context better because as I understand it, no one here has ever, maybe you do, you own a vineyard and you know exactly how they come about. I do not 
And my guess is maybe this will be helpful for you. Here's some context from a scholar on what we need to see in this to understand a little bit better. These activities describe a farmer who's preparing his vineyard. He has chosen this exposed hillside, which gives, according to the scholars in this day, an exposed hillside has this very fertile ground. So it'd be a choice place for this vineyard. And so now he digs up the ground and he carries off all of these stones. And these aren't small stones. These would be big stones. And this is an essential task in a land where limestone outcroppings are the way and soil that helps create beautiful Uh, vibrant vineyards. But they would also then produce an untold number of smaller rocks. And these rocks would then be piled about the perimeter and they would create a hedge, a wall of protection. And what is left over, scholars would note, is what would be used to build this watchtower that we heard of. And this watchtower would take immense time and energy to build. So this is no small task that we see laid out here. But before building this tower, vines, choice vines would be planted. And then for almost one to two years, it would take for them to become producing the kind of crop that one would be expected. These grapes that we hear him say, I long for grapes. And so during this time of waiting anticipation, walls would be strengthened, the watchtower would be built, and vats would be honed out of the hillside, one above the other, connected to a shallow trough. So you get this picture of this incredible endeavor, this enterprise upon which we hear this song based on. But sadly, the expected outcome of good grapes does not happen in the song, does it? It's better translated instead of just wild grapes. It's called stink fruit. Would you like stink fruit? Would you like for all that effort to put that in? Would you be happy with stink fruit? The obvious answer is of course not. Verses five and six give an answer to the question that is asked where he says, what shall I do? What more could I have done? And I imagine here that hearers would be so tuned in, just like you would in a classroom, I imagine, that if I was here to ask you a question that you know the obvious answer for, Children would get all excited. Ooh, ooh, I know the answer. All these hands would go up. and ooh, I'm. So he's drawing in his listeners. He'd say, what more could I have done to my vineyard? And our response, me included with you, if we were of that time, we would go, nothing. And we'd be so excited because we knew the right answer. There would be nothing more that he could have done. And there's the twist in Isaiah's song here. There would be frustration disappointment, I believe probably some anger. Why did all of my hard work yield wild grapes, stink fruit? Why did it do this? In the next couple of verses, Isaiah moves in to make sure all of the listeners of this song would now know exactly what the owner of the vineyard is now going to do. He doesn't even answer that question because it was a rhetorical one. Instead, he says, listen, I will remove the hedge. 
I will remove all of the things that I worked so hard to do to protect it. I will remove it. I will break down the walls that I built up. I will make it a waste. And I will command the clouds that if they rain, no rain shall fall upon this vineyard. He undoes all of the hard work that he has put in previously to his beloved vineyard. And verse 7 hammers home for those in the audience who would have maybe not picked up on where this is headed. He makes sure in verse 7 to say, For the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is you, the listener of this sad, sad song. The house of Israel, the men of Judah, He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, and behold, an outcry. And so we need to stop here for a moment and just go, and I just need to take a break because we're only at verse 7. And if you look at Isaiah 5, it's 30 verses. The song is not over. But let's take a break. Just a small one. Stop here for a moment. What is happening here? Is he asking if it's his fault because the owner of the vineyard, who is God, is he thinking there's something more he could have done? No. So is God at fault here for any of the wild grapes that have happened, the stink fruit? Is he responsible for those things? No, he is not. And so I believe this brings up two incredibly important questions for us as we think about Advent, as we think about reflecting and remembering and all that God has done for us as his people, I think for us to move away from the context of Isaiah 5 and to think about our place here in Herndon, Virginia in November 28th, 2021, I think there's two things for us to consider today as we hear this song and now we will go back and forth together. Why is God's judgment coming upon this vineyard? Why is it coming upon his people? Why does this matter for our story of the promise of hope? Why is there a stump behind us? Well, let's keep looking. Isaiah and many of the prophets, I think, sometimes get a bad rap. They're viewed as these crazy, wacky people. They're just firing mad and hair all over the place and crazy things they're saying and nobody listened to them. That last part's true. Most of the time, nobody listened to them and they certainly didn't like what a prophet had to say. But if we are trying to be objective of the song that Isaiah is singing here, Isaiah is very specific. He's very logical. He lays out in this song an approach for us that is I believe, airtight. He brings up specificity of God's people's sin. But as he's doing this, he knows that he is under that because the next chapter is gonna be one of the most popular ones where he himself comes face to face with the holy almighty God. And he is going to say, and the first time Isaiah ever speaks from his own accord, he says, and those words are, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. That is his first response. He himself is going to recognize the weight and gravity of the sin of his people before God. Isaiah moves into a series of woes, and that's from uh, verses eight on. 
And these woes are him lamenting and aching. He has to pronounce judgment, and yet he himself knows the task that he is doing, that he is under that same condemnation and judgment, aching and yet having to fulfill God's command to prophesy and to carry out the judgment for his people. And so I just, we're not going to read through all of them, but I just want to, I want to read through a couple of these things. Just listen to these things as if you need more of a downer. Here you go. We dialed it up for you. But this is so vital for us to understand the coming weeks of the blessed hope that God has given us. We must sit in the tension to understand the good news of the coming of Jesus. Verse eight says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room. Verse nine, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses with an inhabitant. And I think we can see a picture of this today. Have you ever visited Europe? Because I haven't and I would love to. But have you? Have you ever seen some of the amazing castles and structures that exist? These massive monuments that no one lives in anymore? We see greed. We see selfish ambition. We see... We see Hoarding for oneself instead of recognizing as the Jews would have known that everything they have was given to them by God and they were to give and share and pass down so there would be no marginalized class. And yet what we see here is people hoarding for themselves. There is greed. This is the wild grape of the song being played out in color for the people. Let's move down. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, which would have been used to worship God. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. These people have turned inward their focus is not on God and even seeing all that he has done for them as they would remember from their own forefathers. Instead, everything is turned inward to themselves and their own gain. So they do not even see the deeds of the Lord. But wait, there's more. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. Nobility of Jerusalem, her multitude will go down and her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. <laughs> then they verse 18. Woe. To you who draw full cords of falsehood, who draw sin as cart ropes. And what we see in this, again, hear the word woe. It would be like any of us pleading to someone that we love and care for. Oh, listen, listen, listen. Woe, the sin that you carry on your back. You don't even realize how heavy it is. It is a cord of rope that you are seeking to carry yourself and you cannot do it and you do not even realize the break 
back-breaking burden of your own sin, and yet you still seek to carry it. And on and on it goes. The second question I wanted to bring up is, we've seen how is God's judgment? Why did it happen? And we see God's people. They turned from him. They did not regard him. They did not care about him. So here's my question for you and me today on this first week of Advent. As we prepare our own hearts. Do we presume upon the grace of God? Verse 26 and verse 30 are incredible to read. It's unbelievably haunting. It's difficult to read. And and I can't imagine what it must have been like for hearers to hear this spoken or sung or said over them as they're listening and being told, this is you. I cannot imagine the reality that in verse 26 through 30, the the, the reality is going, your, your, your country is going to be raised to the ground. The Syrians are coming Babylon is next. So the geopolitical realities that this is set in is real. And God is going to even say, he's going to whistle, hey, other nations, go for it. How haunting. We love the country we live in. We would be terrified at that reality. Every one of us, not just Christians, we would be terrified at this reality. So are we to presume on God's grace is the question that I couldn't escape this week looking at this text and trying to go, God, what encouragement do you want me to give this week? Isaiah, please give some encouragement. 2 Corinthians 6.1 says this, and this is where this question comes. And I really, my, my prayer has been that God would sit this on the very top of our heart and let it weigh on it for this next week in a good way. 2 Corinthians 6.1 says this, Paul writes, working together with him, God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I'd never seen that before. I'd always presumed the grace of God is sure. It's never ending. It's available for all time in Christ. And that is true. Yet, somehow we can take his grace in vain. And then it dawned on me, the whole idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the grace of God freely given to sinners who trust in Jesus' perfect life and death and his resurrection, and they put their trust in him as free grace given to them. But it is not simply to be simply just received. No, the grace of God in salvation doesn't simply save us, it transforms us. 
And there, I believe, is the heart of Paul's question and longing for. And in Isaiah 5, I believe we see God's people who have been chosen by God, have taken his grace and have presumed upon it, but they have done so in vain. And so the question haunts me and I think requires honest self-reflection of the church of Jesus Christ to consider where might we need to see Isaiah 5 as some type of mirror for us to ask questions of ourselves in the same light. God, might we've missed, might we've missed the purpose of your grace and that we presume upon it? Friends, I am still processing that question for myself. Isaiah is writing to a people who have received the grace of God and they have done so now in vain and they are being judged and they are being punished and we must pay attention. Matthew chapter three helps to put Isaiah's chapter five in context in two ways. Matthew chapter three helps us to remember what we've just read in its historical context as we're understanding and being taught, but it also provides us a warning today as we look ahead to the birth of Jesus that's come into the world and as we anticipate his second arrival. Matthew chapter three, nine to 10 says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Might the people that Isaiah speaking to or singing to go, what? Abraham is our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. That's not pretty artwork for pretty artwork's sake. It's telling the truth of God from Isaiah and many other places. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Friends, I believe there's something for us today in Isaiah 5 as we think and think deeply about the hope that we have in Jesus today and we look ahead for it and we rightfully should is that do we presume upon grace? Do we call ourselves Christian And might we miss what it actually means to be a Christian? Friend, I say that in deep humility. For I here am standing before you, God's people, and having to say the very things out of my mouth and going, oh God, I can say I know you, but do you know me? And have I presumed upon your grace in a way that I've missed you just the way your people in Isaiah 5 have? Paul picks up in Romans chapter 2. Or do you presume the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness or read his grace is meant to lead to repentance? But the woes show different. They led to what? His grace led them to more self-indulgence, a forgetting of his deeds. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed and he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, do we not hear this in Isaiah 5? 
and not obey the truth. Do we not see them disregard the truth, but obey unrighteousness? Did they not look to other places? And we don't go into this, but even their leaders were looking to other political leaders of Assyria and Babylon and going, let's get in bed with them so they will protect us. And Jesus and Paul through Paul is saying, there will be wrath and fury for misplaced trust. God's judgment, friends, is hard, but it's righteous and true. Okay. You're like, what time is it? Are we almost done? Sometimes they say in preaching, and I know I'm guilty of this because I'm still learning, is you can kind of keep someone underwater for a long time. It's like, buddy, you got a little bit of time and someone needs to breathe. So this would be the moment where I could sense some of you may be going, okay, Evan, I seem to remember at the very beginning you said, there's this, uh, and I think it's on there, this promise of hope. Did you forget? (laughs) My goodness, this is heavy. And you're right, it's heavy. This whole series is about hope. Hope, friends, is the focal point even of this message. Evan, where's the hope? In the midst of all of the judgment and chaos that we see in Isaiah chapter five, there's a small glimmer of hope. And it's in the next chapter. It's the very last verse. And for the listeners that would hear this, it would not change their circumstances. Judgment is coming. But there would be hope and there would be help. In the midst of the darkness, and if you look at the end of chapter five, it's going to say, you look upon the land and there's clouds of distress and despair and darkness. And so as you look at that picture, there's a small, small, glimmer of hope. Isaiah 6, 13 says this. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. And if we could go to that next picture that we've had up the whole time. That stump would be a picture of the raising of a city. Everything cut down. The trees even burned again. Utter devastation and destruction. And yet, we're said in this last line, the holy seed is its stump. And a little further on, Isaiah continues in his theme of hope in chapter 11. And he says, there shall come forth a shoot. Look upon the picture on the screen. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The promise of God has not failed. It has not been lost. It is not forsaken. And this branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the holy seed, the promise from Genesis when sin first entered into the world, the promise there shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. You and me and those in Isaiah 5. And he would decide with equity the meek of the earth, not those inflamed with drink and passion who with guilty bribes would accept things and the social justice of that time would be wrecked and ravaged, much as even we see today in our own world. No, this is perfect equity for the meek and the poor. You and me. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That's the hope that we see in that small little stump. Friends, you would look upon the despair and distress in front of you and see the shoot. And this shoot would be sure. So Advent for you and me today, friends, shouldn't be a passive exercise for us where we simply just come in and we sing great hymns about our faith and about what Christ has done and coming. No, instead, it should be a time for us to not presume upon God's grace and to use reflection to think about what God has so freely given to us and the cost that it is and to recognize he desires a return for the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. So what can we do this first week of Advent? I think we can take time for reflection, time for sobriety. And I don't mean just from drink, but sobriety of our own thinking. It is so good for us to be somewhat critical of ourselves and go, hey God, where are we missing the mark here? Maybe we need help asking others in our community of faith for that help. Our spouses, I'm sure, would love to share some of that information with us. Do we just presume because we say we're Christian that we are indeed Christian? God's grace doesn't merely save us. It transforms us. It does a work within us. It bears fruit. And if it's wild grapes, then we must ask the question, where does that come from? Isaiah helps us to see Paul's words where he says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To not be presumptuous, not to assume God is on our side as if we know everything about God and, and all that he's called us to do. And so we've got God on lockdown and he's good with us because we're good with him. I'm afraid much of the church sometimes falls into that category, myself included. Exhibit A of that struggle and that temptation. And instead today, Advent helps us to slow down and to see the promise of hope and what that means for us and helps us to think and humble ourselves and especially us as the church. And hear me, what I'm not saying is that God's grace is contingent upon our works, 
But what we see over and over again in the text of scriptures is that God desires to see fruit in his people and that he says, Jesus' own words is that he will trim the branches that do not bear fruit. So friends, out of a holy, loving fear of God, we must think, what fruit are we bearing? Is it a response to the free gift of grace that God has given to us that we celebrate on Christmas morning. The beauty of Advent, and I'm closing here, is that we were reminded of how desperate we really are for God to come to us, friends. We're desperate. Americans are not often very good at being desperate people. We do things well on our own, so we think. And sometimes we do. But God is not concerned with ethnicity and nation and power of any sort because he will destroy the wicked and he will whistle at nations for them to come and to go. And yet he is going to look at us and say, if we will listen to his voice, would we take inventory of our own lives and say, God, transform the parts of my life that are not bearing fruit. The beauty of Advent is it reminds us that our hope is not in what we can do for ourselves. We cannot do the powerful work. Only God can do that. Judging of sin and remission of sin and salvation from sin is only the work that Jesus himself does. And so that little shoot, that little branch that breaks through, that's raised through, raised tree stumps, is proclaiming God's faithfulness to you and I this morning. And the beauty of Advent is we get reminded that we've been invited into God's kingdom, just like those had been in Isaiah 5. And we get invited into work. We take part in being able to bear fruit and see fruit borne out, not just in our own lives, but within our community and within the world to see the kingdom of God go forth. That choice grapes might be borne out and the kingdom of God advances. And next week and the following weeks, we will continue to see hope blossom more and more and more from this small little stump. And so I will just simply close with this as the band comes up and leads us into response of being reminded of Emmanuel, God with us, and the hope of that. I read this as we close and then now respond. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Heavenly Father, I feel the weight of your word. I have felt it and even in my own heart, you know, I've wrestled with wanting to find other ways to even somewhat lighten some of these things. And yet, God, what you have shown me to be true about your word, which is always true, 
is that it's good for us. And so, Lord, I'm thankful in this season, even this day, that we, even though we have to sit in a hard place, Father, that that is not the end of the story. And that hard place is designed for a redemptive purpose for your people who might heed that your grace beckons for us to trust you and to lean into you and to seek to follow in your ways. Oh, God, would you help us to do that in this season where we can be so busy with other things? God, Advent isn't about even time with family and friends and presents and good things and vacations. Those are all amazing things. We see that, but those are simply shadows, as your word says, because Christ is the substance. And so, God, would you begin with me and help me in this season to humble myself before you? awe of the hope that springs forth even in the midst of all of my own failures and in the failures of your people which have happened over and over and over again and will continue that God even in the midst of that you're still faithful to continue to call us to repentance to move into experiencing the transforming power of your grace God do not leave us where we are at today I beg you I beg not to be looking at the mirror of Isaiah 5 for our church or any church that calls upon you as Lord and Savior. And so God, would you do a transforming and renewing work this Advent season for us as a family together. Thankful for the promise of Jesus who has stood in our place for all of our sins and failures and has beckoned us to come to him in relationship and it invited into the holy work of the Trinity, of seeing the kingdom of God advance. Oh God, don't leave us the same. Please don't leave me the same. And I'm so thankful that we get to respond now in singing of the beautiful reality of the incarnation of Jesus, that the Emmanuel, that God, you are with us. Would our souls sing from a place of despair into a place of joy now this morning? because of your precious son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. And now we sing, amen.